Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Ostel. What are other common challenges that you're just kind of seeing when you work with these companies that you think form a through line through many of what different climate founders are going through right now, or in general? It's hard to generalize, so I'll take a little bit of creative license here. But I think one of the challenges or common sort of you know hurdles that a lot of these companies have to go through is that when you are operating in climate, you are operating in the world of atoms, not bits. And as a result, you have many more stakeholders mm. than you would if you were just selling enterprise software or you were just selling a direct-to-consumer brand or something like that. When you are operating in cities, when you are operating on transit ways, when you are operating in aviation, you are interfacing with communities, you are interfacing with governments, you are interfacing with utility providers. Right. And these are very entrenched interests. These are folks that have budget to change, but have not for a long time had incentive to do so. And so I think it's something that a lot of investors don't give credit to. All right, Jay, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Nick, it is a pleasure to collaborate on something again. So thank you for having me. Yeah, so let's dive right in. I'd love to have you get listeners up to speed on kind of your personal journey into investing in climate tech, and then we can go from there. Yeah, I mean, I guess my journey with climate tech is a little bit more recent, but my interest in climate change has always been um, something at the forefront. So I've been an avid outdoors person going as as far back as my youth as an (laughs) Eagle Scout, you know, hiking through the Appalachian Trail here on the East Coast. More recently, I got scuba certified and actually saw firsthand the effect that El Nino is having on, you know, beautiful reefs that that I've had the privilege to go and dive at. And Mm. I think it's always been at the forefront of my mind. Really more recently, I, I, you know, part of it was because I've been an investor almost eight years Mm. uh, at early, you know, all early stage companies. But climate tech wasn't really VC investable for a lot of my time that I was an early stage investor. So it was just never something that I considered as a as an investable category, it seemed like, you know, project finance or things that are more debt financed. Mm. And really, it was in 2018, with one of the first climate investments that I made at my last fund, Launch Capital, uh, where I was leading our our seed investing practice, was a company called Revel, Mm -hmm. uh, R-E-V-E-L. Right. And most folks, if you're here in New York, you probably know them as the providers of fully electric mopeds. They now have a fleet of Teslas. They even did electric bike sharing at one point. But the whole idea was how can we electrify the urban landscape of major American cities? So they started in you know, New York, but eventually moved to San Francisco, which I think their second biggest market. They've been in places like Austin, DC, Miami, San Diego. And when we initially invested, I would say everybody that I talked to about this deal, including some folks at our firm, were like, really, man, another scooter company? Because this was <laughs> sort of the heyday of, of Bird and Lime. Right. And to me, it was never about the scooters. It was, hey, like as a New Yorker, you know, I've been in this city coming up on 13 years now. Our public transit is diesel powered Mm -hmm. and it's broken. And everybody thinks about New York City taxi cabs. But you start to like think about the emissions of having hundreds of thousands of these vehicles just roaming the five boroughs. Mm. And it really starts to add up. And you say, okay, as a progressive city, what are we doing? You know, to move that forward. And so Revel, I think, has quite successfully done that. It was my first foray into 
investing in something that is better for the people of the city, right. the better for the people of, of all the cities they're in, but also has a long-term climate impact. Another investment that I did was a company called Roshan, which was a water filtration company and sort of opened my eyes to the problem of microplastics. Right. I mean, today we're finding microplastics in newborn babies because you know their mothers have them and it passes to them in you know uh, the sort of child pregnancy process. And so really understanding, okay, filtration is sort of one step, mm-hmm. but then what are we doing with single-use plastics? What's actually happening to the oceans? You know, that was, I think, where I started seeing, okay, there's obviously a big global problem, right? but we as investors can invest in the companies that are actually changing that. And so I would say 2018, 2019 was really where my, my eyes opened to this being a investable category and became one of the pillars of of what we're doing here at VSE Ventures. Fantastic. Yeah, so much good stuff already in there. I think we've already nicely kind of alluded to the breadth of everything that climate tech touches. And that's something that we can kind of come back to many times in this conversation, I'm sure. Before we get into more of that, would love to also just chart the, you know, we've covered how you got into climate tech. I'd love to also hear the story of how you went from, you know, your previous fund to working at VSC and what you're doing now. So I guess to understand what we're doing at VSC now, I got to give you a little bit of context of the change that has been happening in venture, especially at seed stage, which is where I've spent the majority of my investing career. Right. And really what's been happening is a barbell effect. So on one hand, you have mega funds, multi-billion dollars, multi-stage, multi-sector, kind of do everything, right? You could think of them as your Walmarts or your, you know, sort of big box retailers. Mm-hmm. And that's great. You, you literally can find any kind of company can find a home with the right partner at those funds. And they do multi-stage. So they come in at seed and they'll invest all the way to pre-IPO. That's great. Yeah. You also have your boutique shops that are a little bit more sector focused. So your biotech focused fund, your direct-to-consumer focused fund, Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. And they're typically smaller. I would say sub 100 million. They focus on really having expertise in that category. And eventually they graduate their companies probably to some of those mega funds that we talked about. Right. And there's not a lot in the middle, right? There's not a lot in the middle, though, because you've got the sub 100s and you've got the bigger than 2 billion. (laughs) And the people in the middle are kind of trying to move in one of those two directions. And what I started noticing is because of that move, expertise and specialty in like value add was getting lost, Mm -hmm. right? So I know this firsthand because when we were at Launch Capital, we had close to 80 portfolio companies over the life of our fund there. And... This is because we didn't have a traditional sort of LPGP structure. We had one LP. And so as a result, we had just had a lot of portfolio companies because we didn't have to keep cycling them through multiple funds. Got it. And what happened is we were not really best in class at any one thing. So some companies would say, hey, we want customer intros. Some companies said, Jay, we need help on content and marketing. Some companies want help on structuring their, their finance and operations and you know, sort of deal structuring. And when you are doing five, six, seven different things as a fund, it is really hard to be best in class at all of them. Right. Makes sense. And to me, the sort of early, you know, seeds of VSE Ventures was around the idea of how do we build a fund that is best in class at distribution, Mm. helping their companies get noticed. You know, the hardest thing for my companies at seed stage was just breaking out from the noise. We knew they had a better product, but somebody with something that was, you know, subpar had better distribution, mm. and suddenly they became the category, you know, defining company. Right. And so I'm sharing all of this with one of my co-investors. He happens to be college roommates or was college roommates with 
my now partner, Vijay Chutta. And he was like, all right, Jay, thank you for sharing this with me. Get on a flight, go to San Francisco, meet Vijay, learn about VSC. And I think you guys are speaking the same language from two different directions. And that's kind of how we came together, you know, going back to even 2019 is... Vijay and you know what he's built at VSC over the last two decades, working with startups back when no PR agencies were doing it, taking a real chance on companies in hardware when investors were not really spending time with them. You know, he's always kind of been zigging when other people are zagging, right? Or vice versa. And that made perfect sense for us to come together and build a fund because I came at it from the institutional investor side. He came at it from the PR and operator side. But we understood and appreciated the same problem, which is ultimately we just want these companies to break out. And if we can do something to help them break out, then we can build hopefully a market leading fund. Yeah, yeah, the combination of storytelling and distribution and capital, I mean, that can be powerful for any company, but especially salient for young, enterprising, early climate tech companies. Like that is so often the challenge that I see many of these companies struggling with. It's both raising funds, but also you know telling their story in a way that makes sense to a lot of different stakeholders that might be relevant to them. Yeah, and it continues to be something that I think companies need to refine, right? Folks start to think of getting PR at <laughs> Series B. And half the work I'm sure that our VSC team is doing is undoing some of the stuff that was already done back at their seat in Series A. So I like to say, as a founder, if you start thinking about you know, what your public presence, what your storytelling looks like, what your awareness looks like, even before you go and engage with a PR agency having that top of mind will only make the work you do, you know, later on that much easier, that much more meaningful. I love that. And, um, you know, having started investing in climate tech in 2018, fast forward, it's somehow already 2023. I mean, we can coming up on five years. Yeah, would love to spend some time just talking about, you know, we can start with this year, what you're most interested in, what you're most excited about, what verticals in climate tech are really an area of focus for you. And then we can also backtrack and talk about portfolio companies and all that good stuff. But love to just get into the meat of the investing for a bit. Yeah, I mean, verticals are a little hard and fast for us. I think I like the word themes because I I think they're they're sort of always evolving. A couple of different themes that I'm spending some time in and and we've already started to make some investments in out of our portfolio. So one is this, what I'm calling broadly electrification of everything. Mm. You know, we've seen it with automobiles over the last 10 years. Tesla had a head start. Now you're seeing other folks that are coming out with some really promising electric vehicles and I think EVs will continue to be a big part of this. But even beyond that, right, looking at where is battery power going to replace fossil fuel batteries? Right. We've seen uh, examples in aviation. We've seen examples in shipping. We're even starting to see this in the home, right? I think home energy efficiency, especially with the IRA tax credits, which I think we're all starting to dig into a little bit better and understand like, okay, electrification of our home, what does that really mean? What home improvements can we make to access some of those credits? So that sort of electrification of everything is really interesting to me. I think there's a bit of fintech that's wrapped in it because it's about making this more affordable for people to do. Taking advantage of the incentives, yeah. 100%. And, and we're seeing that like this stuff moves quickly, man. 10 years ago, installing a solar panel on, on your roof was expensive, onerous, kind of you know cutting edge. Yeah. Like you, you knew the one family on your block that had done this. And now it's kind of table stakes. Like, you know, for a lot of these homes that are being built, they're already thinking about how do I limit my on-grid consumption? So I think that's going to be really interesting. Part of this, and maybe this is where it hits kind of the outer edges of what's investable for us, but even looking at this trend of companies replacing traditional lithium batteries 
with other sort of battery alternatives. This is where you start to get into the hard chemistry and hard science. And so for us, it's like, okay, we really need to see some commercial proof points before we get behind a new kind of battery producer. Right. But that's very interesting to me. And it becomes that much more important. You know, this is now speaking about one of our portfolio companies in the space. When you think about communities that are hit by disaster and, you know, the average time that a community faces without power after a disaster is 52 hours. That is two and a half days. That's a long time. And God forbid this is happening in the winter in parts of the town that are hit by snowstorms or, you know, what have you, that means lives right. of, of people that are at jeopardy. And so when we invested in, in Sesame Solar and their CEO, Lauren Flanagan, the thing that really, I think, opened our eyes was it does not have to happen that way. You know, we have mobile solutions. And that's what Sesame Solar is building is these mobile, renewably powered nanogrids that they can deploy in communities, you know, after the floods mm -hmm. in Santa Barbara and, and in California where these counties can have nanogrids on site that they have purchased from Sesame and they can deploy and a single individual can set it up within 15 minutes yeah. where they have fully solar and you know hydrogen powered electricity. And the number one thing that really like opened my eyes to this, Nick, was whenever there is a tornado or a, you know, a fire or any sort of climate disaster, hurricane, the first thing that communities do is roll out a diesel generator yeah. <laughs> so that they can have power near term. I mean, like how, you know, bass backwards is that? Like we are literally making the problem worse right. at the site of a climate disaster. <laughs> and I think realizing like it does not have to be that way and seeing communities respond to it, utilities respond to it, really excited us about investing in this. So anyway, lots of thoughts around electrification. That's sort of one big theme. Uh, happy to dig into a couple other ones uh, if you'd like as well. Yeah, I mean, no, I was just going to kind of echo that. I think, especially as in the example you gave, anytime there's an opportunity to overlap something like electrification, which helps mitigate climate change and reduce emissions with kind of also that adaptation quotient of like, not only are we reducing emissions, but we're also producing a solution that's more resilient in some ways. If it's, you know, maybe it's disaster response in your case, like those overlaps are particularly exciting. And I also think, you know, to tie it back to your point about what is venture backable and investable, there's a lot of software and data and fintech applications that I think will surround everything that goes into, especially like building electrification to coordinate resources better. We're moving from a model where, you know, the grid is kind of based on these power plants that historically have just operated all the time. And now we're moving into a model where every individual house has some of its own distributed resources, whether in rooftop solar or a variety of types of batteries and figuring out how to coordinate all of that most effectively. Like there's no shortage of software and all kinds of other businesses that I'm sure can be built around that. So that'll be keen. I'm keen to watch that in 2023. And monitoring it, monitoring it too is going to become so important because, you know, as we're talking about adding all of these vehicles onto the grid, adding all of these, you know, different use cases for electrification onto the grid, like we haven't answered the big question, like can our antiquated grid system in America handle a you know 25% increase in on-grid capacity, right? And so I, again, I don't know if any part of that is venture investable, but that is a question that we need to be asking and something that as we look at, you know, where the money is flowing from the IRA and other, you know, bills that hopefully will come in the future is really tracking that because transmission and grid capacity expansion continues to be kind of the bottleneck and will only become more of a bottleneck as more people go out and buy EVs.
I've seen some deals recently in Europe that were, I mean, sometimes it's PE, sometimes it's venture, but there's definitely firms doing interesting stuff around robots and drones for stuff like wind turbine monitoring. So I'm sure there's applications for the grid and transmission and substations and stuff like that down the line too, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I think for us, like that's definitely going to be a big piece of thesis. I mean, another one that I hope we'll get a chance to talk about that I'm spending more time on is looking at sort of zero waste single use products. Yeah, let's do it. Let's dive right in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for us, it's, it's, I think it's going beyond the sort of like direct to consumer use case. That's not where our fund gets excited. Mm. I think it's looking at production and scaled manufacturing. The way I'll sort of say it is we want to back products that a consumer would get excited to use whether or not they care about the environmental impact. Understood. And the big challenge there is there is a green tax or green premium with a lot of these eco-friendly solutions. And I'm not convinced that in the long term, just, you know, you want to talk about political fracturing or just people that don't keep this at the forefront of their pocketbook are really going to be compelled to act. Right. If the only benefit is, hey, you get to feel better about not putting more plastic out into the world. Right. You know? So that's kind of where we're spending some time. We made an investment in a company called Gaia Star that is producing clay single use cups for things like iced coffee, ice cream. They're working with a catering company. They've, you know, already done a pilot run of, of 10,000 of these. They've got POs for up to uh, orders of up to a million. So now it's about, okay, how do we scale up capacity and actually get them there? But that one really excited us because we said, you know, it is, it's a cool product. Yeah. It has a path to price parity, right? And so now if you are going to a coffee shop or you're going to an ice cream shop, it's not, oh, I want to pay a dollar premium to get the cool, you know, cup. It, you can, I'm sure coffee shops can charge for that. But it might just be as simple as, hey, when I'm done drinking my coffee, I don't want to have to think about what happens to this plastic cup. Right. You know, I can just crumble my clay return it to the dirt where it came from. <laughs> yeah. And and that was the really cool concept. And it's something that East Asian communities have been drinking out of clay and ceramics for thousands of years to then take that and say, how do we bring it to a an American or a European context was really, really cool and something that got us excited because we said, okay, um, there's a lot of folks that are selling eco-friendly solutions. There are very few folks that are actually manufacturing them. How do we get behind somebody who's doing the, the latter? Yeah, cool. Once they're in a New York coffee shop, you'll have to let me know and we can go grab one and check it out. I would love that. I had a chance over December to actually go and have a coffee out of it. And like, it's cool. It feels <laughs> unique. Like it feels like a little bit upscale almost. I'm like, oh, cool. Like I'm at a blue bottle, but I'm getting a real cup. I'm not getting, you know, the plastic thing that no shade on blue bottle. Love their coffee. Right. But like, you know, you don't you don't feel good about a PLA lined cup that you're drinking out of. Yeah. So, it goes yeah. back to the beginning of our conversation talking about microplastics and stuff like that too. I mean, if you can reduce the need for plastics at the kind of at the front end of the of the supply chain, then don't have as much to worry about at the back end when you're kind of dealing with these things in a landfill or what have you. Yeah, spot on. Um, and I also wanted to just kind of note that, yeah, I definitely have been thinking more about the price point conversation too. I think it's even changed over the last 18 months with the way that the economy's gone and the way that inflation's gone. Like everything is so much more expensive. Like even people that 12 months ago would have said, hey, you know, like I do have the capacity and the interest to spend 50 extra cents on a solution that's better for the environment. You know, some of that, even for people that have the intention, is no longer as possible as it perhaps was a year or two ago. So that's another important driver to keep in consideration. 
I think it'll continue to stay. So, you know, we for a decade have gotten used to VCs subsidizing our upscaled way of life, right? You call an Uber, it's 20 bucks at the airport. It's like, okay, do we really think that was sustainable? Like, oh, Airbnb is, you know, so cheap. It's so much cheaper than a hotel. And now we're sort of seeing the other shoe drop as these companies go public or the VC money dries up or 15-minute delivery no longer makes sense from any sort of economic (laughs) standpoint. Then you sort of think, okay, was this ever a sustainable way of life, right? Right. And so I think I would be interested to see Look, you will still see these VC subsidized solutions out there, but I'd be interested to see in the long term, right, over a decade, which is the investing horizon of a typical seed fund, what actually lasts. And my firm belief and our firm belief is it's the folks that are creating products that are better for you anyway. Right. And they have the added benefit of being better for the environment. But if you're really being asked to pay a green premium, it's just not sustainable long term. Got it. I resonate with that. That's a great lead in. I'd love to chat with, you know, you've been investing in climate tech for a while, investing in general, even longer. Like what's the, you know, there's a lot of talk about coming into a new year. 2021 was great for climate tech companies. 22 was great for climate tech companies. What are you seeing in the market right now? And is it still kind of full steam ahead? We've got the IRA behind our back or any signs that things are shifting a little bit in the market right now? I think in the broader market, Nick, things are definitely shifting. I think you are seeing contraction happening at the later stages, which I think takes its feedback from sort of growth stage, pre-IPO, you know, even what's happening in the public markets. Right. That's going to take some time to trickle down, Mm -hmm. so to speak, to the early stage where we operate. And so the interesting thing for us is that effect may be delayed. That effect may not get there at all. Because by the time the contraction hits seed stage, the public market may have recovered and new funds are being raised and so on, right? But my sort of headline on the climate tech side is this is the absolute best time to be raising if you are a climate tech startup. And I will double underline that. (laughs) And there's a couple of reasons for that, right? Sure. No doubt there's a slowdown in venture funding over the last couple of quarters. We can see the data shows that. But while the overall U.S. VC market cool, and I'll say U.S. because that's generally it's 80% of our portfolio, even more is here in the U.S. But even though that market cooled kind of quarter over quarter in 2022, climate barely was impacted, right? So if you're seeing a 27% decline in C-stage funding at broad sort of tech, you're seeing a 6-7% decline in climate, right? So there's levels to this, right? <laughs> U.S. climate companies, just to give you some stats, raised $19 billion in the first half of 2022. And we're on track. I don't know what the final data is going to be. We're on track to match what they did in 2021 with $40 billion. Right. The big difference is you had more deals, yeah. so smaller checks, right? So more deals, but less checks. It was shifted a little earlier stage. Yeah. Shifted a little bit earlier stage, right? But you might have seen the stat. More than a quarter of all venture funding in 2022 went to climate companies. Right. That's mind-boggling. I mean, 10 years ago, had the sort of clean tech 1.0 boom. We are clearly in another period right now where it's not just us. Investors much larger than us with larger funds than us are clearly keying you know, in on this as the number one investable category for new funds. Yeah. And so I'll come back to if you are an entrepreneur right now 
and you have a true climate company, I'm not talking about take your thing and you know add sustainable to it, <laughs> but a real climate company, this is a great time to be meeting investors that care about this category, that have a perspective on you know themes and verticals that they want to invest in. They don't just say, oh, broadly, yeah, I'm interested in climate, but they actually have perspectives. Right. And they understand the challenges that you're going to face because they've been doing it for a while. This is a great time for you to be spending time with those investors. Even if you're not raising right now, get on their radar. Right. You know, help them understand why you are building what could one day be a market leading solution. Because I think there were like just 80 new funds raised in 2022 alone focused on climate, right? It's like every week there's a couple new ones at this point. There's a lot of capital out there. And so other categories, fintech, SaaS, maybe a little bit softer. Climate is hot right now. Anytime you see one of the kind of big, stodgy old institutions like Goldman Sachs, I think last week they announced a new $1.6 billion fund. I'm like, you know, that's a pretty telltale sign that climate has arrived in that sense. You know, it's here and it's here to stay. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a lot of different applications to it. I mean, we're seeing funds that are, you know, primarily sort of consumer impact. For sure. There are folks that are B2B industry focused. We just want to invest in construction, real estate, industrials because we feel like the majority of emissions are coming from, you know, these three verticals. There are folks like us that are a little broader, but we're really focused on companies that we can help with storytelling and narrative building and climate. There's a lot of greenwashing out there and we want to help our companies, you know, avoid that. And so there's a lot of funds out there. And as an entrepreneur, you know, as a CEO, it's your job to make sure you're putting the right team of investors around you to, to, to help achieve those goals. Right. And I'm glad we came back to that perspective because something I also wanted to pick your brain about is, you know, you're very sharply attuned to challenges for companies or opportunities for companies around fundraising and also storytelling and distribution. But I also like that you have, since you, you know, interface with such a diverse mix of climate tech companies, I was curious to ask, you know, what are other common challenges that even if they're operating in something really seemingly disparate, like maybe it's water versus renewable energy or home electrification, what are other common challenges that you're just kind of seeing when you work with these companies that you think form a through line through many of what different climate founders are going through right now, or in general? It's hard to generalize. So I'll take a little bit of creative license here. But I think one of the challenges or common sort of, you know, hurdles that a lot of these companies have to go through is that when you are operating in climate, you are operating in the world of atoms, not bits. And as a result, you have many more stakeholders Mm. than you would if you were just selling enterprise software or you were just selling a direct-to-consumer brand or something like that. When you are operating in cities, when you are operating on transit ways, when you are operating in aviation, you are interfacing with communities. You are interfacing with governments. You are interfacing with utility providers. Right. And these are very entrenched interests. These are folks that have budget to change, but have not for a long time had incentive to do so. And so I think it's something that a lot of investors don't give credit to. And the other piece of it is that, you know, broadly, a lot of these climate companies have some sort of hardware component, even if they are not the manufacturer of that hardware, they perhaps have to interface with a hardware component, right? Maybe you're a, a grid monitoring software. Sure. Well, what are you <laughs> monitoring? You're monitoring hardware that is 
getting voltage and amperage, right? And so at some level, you have to, as an investor, give credit to the fact that like, you're operating in the world of atoms. To make real change, you will have to interface with the real world. And my perspective is software-only solutions can only get so far, right? And so that is a common theme, a common challenge, is a number of stakeholders and just operating in the real world and the challenges that brings. Now, you know, not to leave on a dour note, I think there are things that founders can do early on to anticipate that, right? One is when we invest, we look for founder market fit. So we look for folks that understand that challenge. And I'll give an example from my past um, fund with Revel, Mm -hmm. right? The two founders previously were at GLG and they were category experts, one in batteries and electrification and the other in local government relations. Got it, yeah. And it's like, you could (laughs) not think of a better founding duo than two folks that, you know, appreciated the challenge of building batteries and appreciated the challenge of working with, you know, local transit authority and MTA and DOT. And so when we are evaluating those companies and we see founders that give deference to that challenge and say, hey, we understand the cycles that these stakeholders work on. Right. We understand that we cannot make certain decisions without having a review period. And we're budgeting that into how much we're raising or you know what our launch roadmap and timeline is. That to me signals somebody that understands those challenges. And so the more that you can understand it, the more that you can communicate it, the more the right investors will be willing to take that ride with you. Yeah, that's a massive differentiator. I mean, I I've always some of the conversations that stuck out to me most last year with companies were ones where I came away with a sense that or with, you know, a founder or someone saying like, yeah, we are in the state courthouse trying to like make sure that new policies are shaped in a way that's advantageous to our business and our mission. And I'm like, instead of just crossing your fingers, that's a powerful position to be in if you're actively part of those conversations or whatever, you know, stakeholder relationship is most relevant. That is something that a lot of VCs have shied away from for a long time, right? And it's either the long sales cycle or the long approval cycle or having to work with government. And I posit to you that we are probably in the problems that we are in today because we've ignored just that aspect of it. We, we haven't locked arms with local government and DOT. We haven't worked with the FAA or you know the, the folks controlling our waterways because we've just ignored it. And we've said, we'll work around it. We've taken the Uber approach. Tough. They'll deal. Once we land, we'll expand, right? It doesn't work. And and one of the, I think, like most memorable things that Frank Rieg at Revel said to me, probably in our first or second meeting, and he said, move fast and break things doesn't work when the thing that you might be breaking is people. Yeah. It's just you have to spend time and make sure that you give deference to that. A lot of VCs that are eager in climate change may go away at some point because they don't believe that, you know, long term this is viable for them. But I do think that the ones that do stick around and we intend to, that have the patience for it, that have the understanding for it, that can help tell the stories that resonate with, you know, these shareholders, these stakeholders, I think we're going to be, you know, in for really great just market opportunity. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I mean, if you were wanted to invest in climate technologies, but still wanted to avoid doing that hard work of, you know, building relationships with stakeholders, you'd end up 
kind of having to skirt around all of the really important stuff, right? Like no, no company that, as you said earlier, interfaces with the grid in some capacity or with water treatment in some capacity is really going to be able to avoid that. So if you're not interested in investing in companies that want to do that work, then it'd be pretty limited as a climate tech VC. I mean, there may still be some good stuff that you can invest in to be sure, but it'd be harder. Yeah. And I want to believe that these stakeholders also care for sure about making progress on this. You know, I think the folks managing our grid are realizing how overtaxed it is. The folks that, you know, keep lobbying to build more transmission lines, but like the NIMBYs don't want it, right? They recognize that this is a need that we have. And instead of shunning them, I think actually engaging with them will hopefully move the ball in the right direction. Again, I, I can't know for sure. That's an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about that, but it definitely resonates with me that, you know, in a sense, yeah, like a lot of industry and venture capital investment has really circumvented or avoided those areas of all those different areas that, and some of those happen to now be ones that we're really struggling with, whether it be the grid or I don't know, we saw last week, there were like massive flight delays, FAA computers went down, all that type of stuff. So it stands to reason that we should be paying more attention to this stuff. Well, not to toot our own horn, Nick, but that's part of what, you know, we're offering our companies when we invest in them, right? Which is any good narrative building, storytelling exercise has to have a end consumer or audience in mind, right? I don't, I don't mean consumer as in the end user, but has to have an audience in mind. And for a lot of folks, that is uh, prospective employees that they want to hire, right? They do a funding announcement. They want to make sure they get the best talent in. And that's great. There's a lot of capital out there today, which means that you don't have to choose between going to work for Amazon and going to work for a promising climate tech company. That's an awesome place to be. You can kind of follow your passion, right? So, or they're looking for prospective customers. That's a big reason that companies, you know, do PR and do storytelling. And lastly, it's sometimes when they're looking for their next round of investors. Mm -hmm. But in climate, there is that fourth category. And maybe that's government relations. Maybe that's utilities, right? There is that other constituent that isn't exactly a customer, but they are really keyed in on the solution that you are building, right? Maybe it's Department of Forestry yeah. because you're building something for the National Parks and Forests. The work that you do, the groundwork that you do in laying your narrative and storytelling will actually have a big impact on whether you are successful in building the right relationship with these stakeholders. And we've seen that with the companies that we've already worked with. Investing in that early makes a big difference. Self-serving as that sounds, <laughs> you know, we've seen that it makes a difference. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And we've talked about some of the stuff that's really compelling to you in terms of themes for investment in 2023. I'd be curious because we've talked a lot about kind of the beneficial nexus of storytelling and investing. Are there things that the team at VSC still wants to build at 2023 that kind of build on top of what you're already doing, but would help companies even more? Like, are there gaps that you're still hoping to fill and expand in terms of how you work with companies? Or is it a lot of kind of like, we know the playbook, we just don't have enough hours in the day to do it for as many companies as we'd want to. Well, one of the things that really excited me about coming to VSC and working with the folks here is that we constantly iterate. And it's that startup mentality, even in you know year 20 of <laughs> the PR agency. And I guess we're in year two of the fund. Yeah. We are consistently iterating and we're trying new things, right? So we obviously have a lot of success and have had a lot of success on the PR side with press, with written engagements, with content, with bylines. More recently, our VSC studio has been putting out phenomenal video content, you know, best in class, award winning, 
for you know the companies that we've worked with like Bedrock Ocean and there's probably a few others that I'm not thinking of right off the top of my head. Um, that video content is really valuable because these are visual companies. Yeah. Right. You need to understand what they look like, and it's honestly more fun to do than with like a SaaS product because like how do you visualize like a CRM? Right. It's a little <laughs> bit hard. But if something is really doing you know underwater ocean mapping, that is a very visual product that you need to see to understand and believe. And so. That's a new iteration of VSC and now with VSC Studio. Uh, you know, we've done work on employer branding. Mm. And I talked about not having to make the choice between going to work for Amazon and going to work for a climate tech startup. Well, if you're that climate tech startup, what are the things that you can be doing today to really position yourself for the best hires? How can you be, you know, going beyond the job rack, right. managing your Glassdoor page, managing your, your outreach, mm. managing your recruiting funnel and pipeline? And screening for missionaries, not mercenaries, who aren't just coming because, hey, now you can afford to pay them, but actually believe in the long-term vision. Because we know startups are long. It takes a long time. How do we make sure that you're recruiting the right talent that's going to actually you know, be with you for three, five years on the line? And so those are things that we've already done. And I think we're going to continue experimenting with stuff in 2023, You know, whether it's our podcast that we launched, which is Climb by VSC. Every week, we talk with leading, you know, category experts with investors, with experienced founders about their lessons in building in this space. We feel like there's a lot of great podcasts out there, yourself included, that are talking about sort of the big picture. Sure. We want to dig in a little bit more into, hey, what are those challenges that you're facing? You know, what's the thing that really surprised you or that you didn't expect? What took a lot longer? And hopefully the founders that are listening to it every week are going to walk away with one or two things that they can, you know, put up on their board at their next board meeting and say, we're not here yet, you know, but I heard a Series B company talking about this being an issue that they faced. How do we make sure that we sort of see around corners and, you know, alert your investors to that being something you're thinking about? So that's kind of the thing. It's about expert conversations for scaling mm. climate startups. And that's really what we do it on Climb every week. And we've launched, what, 13, 14 episodes today. But some really cool folks, you know, Impossible Foods, Caitlin Holloway from 776 Capital and the cool stuff they're doing. We had uh, Harsh Patel from Wireframe, who's kind of been an OG, you know, hardware climate guy for a while. So some really, really great conversations. A couple of government officials coming up too. So that's, I think, something we'll keep, you know, iterating on, which is not just keeping this knowledge to ourselves, yeah. try to share it with folks that, you know, even aren't in our portfolio yet. Yeah, I love that. Uh, the knowledge sharing, especially, that's something that I hope we'll see a ton of in the next decade is... A lot of these companies have pretty common overarching mission, right? Which is to make the world a more sustainable place and help reverse climate change. And so even if they're working on pretty disparate themes or verticals, as we've said a couple of times, there's a lot of common challenges that you know can be generalized across these businesses that folks can help one another with. So excited to hear that you all are facilitating that. It's fun. It's fun to get to tell these stories. And it's fun for climate innovation to be cool mm. you know it's cool to give a shit man it's cool to care it's cool to think about the planet that we're leaving for the next generation and i've really been excited again it's really early days you know we've just done 15 or 14 episodes mm. but it's really cool to see the reception and people that want to hear these stories and so i'm excited to keep doing more fantastic we'll put you on the spot here with a question that i always like to ask folks a little bit zooming out if you weren't investing, working at VSC, and you had to go build a climate tech company, it can be in something really far afield, whatever you know, you're know, potentially passionate about, what do you think that might look like? 
That's a good question. There's a couple different directions that I think I can take this. So I've been digging in mm. for the last, I want to say quarter and change on carbon capture and storage. Mm. And, you know, I, I've sort of gone full circle where I started with, wow, this is really cool. <laughs> then realizing, okay, actually, it still costs five times more than nature-based solutions to actually, you know, the biggest use case for the captured carbon is actually in the oil and gas industry. Yeah. Because people pump the CO2 into oil wells to extract more fossil fuels. And that's something, something like, oh my God, like I went from being a real champion of this technology to then turning around and saying, hey, do we really want to be rubbing shoulders with the folks that you know refuse to innovate? But the common theme in both direct air capture or, or let's say mechanical capture and uh, nature-based solutions is that there is no rhyme or reason to the quality of these carbon credits. Hmm. And there are a whole host of systems out there that are trying to qualify and rate and mark these credits. Right. And there isn't a generally accepted methodology. So I do not know if this is a viable venture backable solution. This is probably why I'm an investor and not a founder because you know, like founders need to go after big markets. I can sit back and wait until we find a company doing it. Right. I would love to invent some kind of a generally accepted practice and some kind of a system by which we can rate and classify, you know, in a similar way to what ratings agencies did on Wall Street, obviously before 2008, and hopefully since their reforms thereafter, but find a way to actually create a generally accepted practice. So much of how major industries are thinking about ESG policies and so much of how major industries are thinking about their own emissions is being influenced by, we are letting people sort of check the box on being climate conscious without actually evaluating if the credits they are buying aren't incrementally, you know, helping us get to net zero. And I think the more research I do on this, the more I read about this, the scarier it becomes because we are not just keeping net neutral. We are actually making the problem worse. We are allowing people to pollute more without actually understanding the value of these credits. So if oversight, you know, if someone needs to go build a company doing that, then that's probably where I would spend my time. Yeah, definitely a lot of challenges in carbon markets, fragmentation being one of them, credibility being one of them. And certainly no shortage of companies trying to invent better solutions to remove carbon from the atmosphere and as like financing for said companies, marketplaces for said companies. But yeah, I still think that, as you said, there's a gap around. We'll see, hopefully in five or 10 years time, there are standards that everyone's in alignment on, but uh, certainly too early to tell whether that's shaping up anywhere specific. They're going to have to be, man. Like There is too many billions of dollars riding on this. And for the bigger companies, I don't know if you have folks who are at you know large sort of Fortune 500 companies, there's a massive PR risk because consumers care about this. Customers care about this. And if we start seeing that, you know, big global brands are rubber stamping their carbon credits and they're using that as an opportunity to pollute more, that can be a massive irreparable harm to your brand. So I, I think there's just too much money riding on this for someone not to go and build this. And I'm definitely keeping my, my eye out on you know, whoever's getting closest. Yeah, I'll do the same too. Yeah, carbon markets and carbon removal, as fraught as they can be, has definitely been an interesting place to pay a lot of attention the last year. And I think there definitely are a number of folks that are 
we'll make some progress in the next 12 months and 24 and 36. To close with some calls to action, you know, there's probably folks listening in that would love to chat with you about the business that they're building. To help them out a little bit, what do you look for in terms of conversations or potential investment opportunities in companies, whether that's a specific, you know, we've talked about stage a bit, but characteristics, you know, maybe some impact quotients that you try to check. What does that look like for you? Yeah, so we talked about a couple of the themes that I'm really excited about in, you know, in within climate innovation. But any founders are listening, we always love to be educated on categories that we haven't written a check into or that we haven't really gone deep on. And so don't let those limit you. If you're building a promising company in climate tech, we want to hear from you. We invest 250 to 500k in a seed stage companies. That's kind of the, the space that we play at. We reserve obviously for follow-ons for those companies at Series A. The one thing I like to let folks know, we are a co-invest fund. So we do not focus on leading. We like to partner with lead investors that have experience being great board partners, that have experience helping their companies graduate from C to Series A. And we know what we do well. We do PR and storytelling really well. So that's who the role that we want to serve in your cap table is you know, coming in with a 250 to 500K check and really helping get you noticed by the folks that you need to get noticed by and you know help you answer those questions around positioning, messaging, and awareness. So that's kind of our, our focus. We invest and then we help our companies with that value add. You know, on your question of sort of like hard and fast rules around quantifiable impact, we don't have any hard and fast like gigaton reduction requirements. I know some funds are starting to think more strongly about it, especially European funds uh, that, that we've spoken to. But every deal that we do has to pass like, the smell test on our bullshit meter, right? For lack of a better word. A lot of greenwashing out there. We've seen enough deals to know what actually moves the needle and what doesn't. And I'll tell you, like 80, 85% of deals, you kind of know right away, okay, this will have an impact on reducing single-use plastics. You know, this will change the way that folks are using electric, you know, electrification and electric batteries instead of fossil fuels. So nine times out of 10, that's not a problem, but we have a pretty high bar from a, you know, what actually moves the needle, because that's what our LPs expect. They expect that if we're investing in climate, we're not just doing it as a, a cover sheet, right? Uh, we are actually looking deeper than that. And then other than that, you know, I always come back to what we talked about earlier, which is, would a buyer buy this even if they didn't care about climate change? And whenever I see a company that is, you know, building something in that space, and there's a real why for them existing, we get really excited. So I'd love to hear from any founders that are building under those categories. Boom. Yeah. And I'll be sure to make connections between anyone that might reach out to me to you. Lastly, where should folks kind of keep an eye for updates from you or from the fund in general and to stay educated with what y'all are up to? Nick, we are everywhere, man. <laughs> we <laughs> we're on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at VSC Ventures. You can always find lots of cool content from us there, especially from the podcast, but increasingly we'll do more stuff with our portfolio companies and perspectives from myself and Vijay and some of our venture partners in climate. You can find, you know, our, our website is vsceventures.com. You'll see a lot of our portfolio companies there. You can read perspectives that we have there, uh, even transcripts of our podcast conversations nice. in case you want to just search through something quickly there. And otherwise, you can always find me on Twitter uh, at jkapoornyc. These days, I'm tweeting about a lot of climate. <laughs> 
But now that my New York Giants are in the playoffs, I'm also <laughs> tweeting about that. So bear with me, uh, you know, during football season. But you can always find me for um, any and all takes there. Yeah, fair enough. We've probably got, you know, a couple weeks of lead time before this gets published. So listeners in the future will know what happened to your New York Giants and uh, we'll either be... Congratulations to the Giants for winning the Super Bowl. <laughs> I'm going to eat my words. I know it. I know it. There you go. Hey, you never know. <laughs> all it takes is, you know, one win a week. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining. It's been a pleasure. Nick, this has been so fun, man. Thank you so much. I've been on the other side of the mic for so many episodes with the Climb Podcast, so it's <laughs> nice to be nice to be interviewed for a change. So I, I thank you for the time. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech. Make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.